This is Dan Diamond, and you're listening to Pulse Check. And you're listening after arguably the biggest upset in political history. And President-elect Donald Trump has the least clear policy agenda of any incoming president in modern times. There are enormous questions around what this means for our nation, what the Trump administration will do on immigration, on trade, on social issues. And I can't answer those on this podcast. What I can try and do today is illuminate one key issue. What happens next with Obamacare? Repealing the law was a key part of Trump's campaign. He campaigned aggressively on that issue in the past few weeks. And you'll hear from two people with unique perspectives to share on where we go. First, Jim Capretta of the American Enterprise Institute. Jim's one of the most influential conservative health policy thinkers. He's a champion of Speaker Paul Ryan's proposal to repeal and replace Obamacare, and that's thought to be the blueprint of what Trump will do next. And then you'll hear from Ron Pollack, executive director of Families USA. Ron has vowed, quote, total war to defend Obamacare's coverage expansion, and he gives us a glimpse into how their early battle plan is shaping up. I always want to hear from listeners, and now more than ever, you can email me at ddiamond@politico.com. You can find me on Twitter at ddiamond. And with that, let's hear from Jim Capretta. Jim, AEI is the leading conservative think tank in D.C., and Republicans won a sweeping victory last night. I saw some stat that 110 out of 114 polls had Clinton clearly winning. Did anyone at AEI expect this to happen? Did you expect this? Uh, I did not expect it to happen. Uh, I've been I've been wrong all along about various things, and um, I'm sure there are some people at AEI that had better insights into the the you know political pulse of the country than than I do. Um, and so I'm I'm sure there were some people that had a, a sense something like this might happen, but I wasn't I wasn't among them. Well, one of the things that's also going to be the the subject of a lot of secondhand or, or backwards looking analysis and potential recriminations, the role of policy in a campaign. Donald Trump won with a very thin policy platform. What does that mean for a policy thinker like yourself and, and, and your colleagues? I realize we are in the early hours. And if you don't have a fully fleshed out theory of where policy plays and politics moving forward, but in in the soul searching that's going on in the political and policy world this morning, I'm wondering what are you thinking? Well, you know, and that I do have just one thought in that regard, which is that I, I think a lot of voters were attracted to the Trump campaign based on a, a sense of it was a gut sense, a, a little bit of an emotional reaction uh, to some things they thought were going in the wrong way, and just wanted someone to kind of really shake it up and change directions. So they didn't have a good sense, I don't think, necessarily where they wanted to go. They just didn't like how things were going and wanted it to be changed. And he was certainly a change agent. Having said that, I think that, you know, the proof really will be what happens in the next couple of years, right? I mean, uh, policy uh, makes a big, big difference in governing. And if he's able to put in place policies that the public finds attractive and supports and they produce results that the public then says, yeah, this is the kind of change we were hoping for, then he will have succeeded. Uh, 
But my own intuition is that some of the problems that people are upset about and anxious about are quite difficult and complex. And I don't think they lend themselves to simplistic solutions so that any candidate, you know, especially him, may, may fall short of their expectations. So, so what are some of those challenges that you see that his proposals might not surmount? <laughs> well, we're probably here to talk about healthcare, <laughs> so we'll get into that. But I, I do think, just generally on the economy, my own my own thought is that the problems of stagnant wages and lost um, jobs in certain sectors of the economy is not something that can be easily easily fixed. I don't think, and um, certainly I'm not a uh, I, I'm out of our area here today, but I, I don't think the uh, that restrictionist and protectionist trade policies actually is a really a recipe for slower growth and less dynamism rather than more and less job creation. And so I'm, I worry that pursuing that kind of policy road is going to be very counterproductive. Yeah, and the challenge of bringing manufacturing jobs back in an economy that has moved in a different direction when it comes to manufacturing. Absolutely. I, I agree with that very much. I mean, there's lots of many good manufacturing jobs in the United States, but they're different than they were 30 years ago. They're more high-tech uh, kind of industrial jobs. And we want those. They're high-paying, they're good, and, and they're cutting edge. Uh, but they're different from uh, the kinds that were here 40 years ago. And they haven't, frankly, been around for the last 20. So I think the idea that they're going to come back you know, in, in some rapid fashion is really not realistic. Let's let's bring it to the policy area that we're we're going to talk about health policy specifically. And you've been clear-eyed about healthcare policy these past number of years. I have something that you wrote four years ago today on, on the Health Affairs blog. Uh, quote: Full-scale repeal and replacement of the ACA is not in the cards after President Obama's re-election. But today, November 2016, it could be. How realistic? Do you think it is that Republicans, led by President-elect Trump, will move to repeal and replace Obamacare? I think it's highly likely that they're going to do something pretty big. Uh, you know, he ran very, very hard against the ACA, and he won. And almost every member of the House and Senate who's been elected has also run against the ACA in, in pretty strong terms, you know, whenever they were running, you know, recently as all the House members did or whenever the senators were elected, including some very recently. So I think they're going to be, you know, the people that put them in office are going to say, well, if you don't do it now, when are you going to do it? And so especially for a Trump administration, they're going to they're going to have a mandate, I think, to try to do something big. Having said that, the hard part of repeal and replace is always replace, not repeal. And there isn't unanimity yet amongst the GOP types about what that would look like. Even though the House Republican leadership put out a beginnings of a plan uh, last summer. In, in your office. Yeah, that was re uh, released here at AI in uh, June of, of this year. Uh, it's still not clear that that has all full-scale agreement amongst the key people that would need to pass it. And so, you know, they have a lot of work ahead in terms of, you know, how do they pursue repeal and how do they pursue replace and what does replace look like? So let's let's talk about that plan, A Better Way. And I have it in front of me on this table. It's about 37 pages, so I was able to print it up relatively quickly. This is not a full-scale plan. This is a proposal. And what I heard, Jim, from conservatives these past number of months is because Trump has such a murky 
policy on health care, a policy that has changed and at times has been at odds with itself, that Speaker Ryan's plan could be plug and play, uh, or, or at least that is the temptation to just take what Ryan and, and team have already put together and use that as a blueprint moving forward. I think during the campaign, we saw some separation between the Paul Ryan camp and the Trump camp. Do you think that that will create a barrier to taking the Ryan plan and and using that as a blueprint moving forward? Good question. I'm not sure I have a straightforward answer to that. I, I think the uh, Better Way plan is pretty well thought out. I think it could uh, serve as a starting point for an actual legislative proposal. It would take some work to turn what they've written up into something, you know, with legislative language, with CBO analysis of it to kind of get it all ready for prime time. I think the bigger challenge is that in our complex political process, uh, if you don't have an executive with a clear vision of what they want and the power of the executive branch pushing on it and committed to something and communicating to the public about it and really marshalling the forces inside and outside of government to make it happen, if you don't have that leadership from the executive branch to make it go, it's hard to pass something this big and this complicated. So I, I, I think the executive will be ki- critical here. I mean, to, to underscore your point, uh, Harvard's David Cutler spoke to me for Politico Pulse, the, the newsletter, and he said Trump has the, quote, Trump has the least coherent views about health policy of any president elected, of any person elected to the presidency in modern times. I mean, we are, to be frank, in uncharted waters here. Given how thin his plan is, how much he has changed on Obamacare over the years, it does seem hard to game out exactly what's going to happen next. I agree with that. And, you know, critical to all this will be the type and uh, people that he puts into his administration, what kind of views they have. I think generally they're going to be conservative-leaning people, so they'll probably be more or less inclined to the kind of plan that Ryan has put together. But not universally so. And certainly the candidate himself has expressed a lot of contrarian views that could really dictate some of this. Just for instance, he says many times that he wants to take care of everybody, that his plan will take care of everybody. And I think, you know, that's going to run up very quickly against the notion of, well, how many people will have health insurance under his plan versus under the ACA? And is it okay? Is it taking care of somebody if maybe they don't have insurance, but you provide just some charity care to them or some subsidies? So I think that's going to be a big part of the conversation. And and to put some numbers around that, Commonwealth Fund uh, David Blumenthal was was talking to me this week and pointed out that under the Trump plan as currently modeled, we would have 20 million people or so losing health insurance with Obamacare repeal and maybe 17 million of them staying uninsured given the lack of full expansion and the folks who would be on the outside looking in would be those poorer Americans or maybe Americans who are in ill health. And they would see this this short window of having coverage go away and they'd be back to the margins. Yes. A big part of this conversation will be, will the GOP embrace the tax credits that are proposed in a better way? Uh, The tax credits are critical. Tax credits allow you to effectively give a voucher to a lower-income household and allow them to use that to the secure health insurance. It's not all that different, even though many in the Republican circles don't like to say so. It's not all that different from the premium credits that are provided in the ACA. Exactly. It's basically financial assistance to someone who doesn't have an employer-based plan. Uh, 
And so in a better way, in a, son, a sense, they have a universal plan. Everybody in America should either be in an employer plan, Medicare, Medicaid, or get a tax credit. Okay. The problem is that some in the GOP don't like the tax credit. And so I think what's going to have to happen here is they're going to have to have a, you know, just come to the realization that if they embrace a tax credit and push for it and they make it generous enough, they can compete with the ACA on insurance coverage levels in a way that they, I think, could be proud of. If they don't embrace it, they're going to have problems. We went through a brutal health care fight not all that long ago yeah. at the beginning of the Obama administration. Do you think legislators and Americans have the time, patience, and, and willingness to go through what could be another bruising health care round just eight years later? Good question. Uh, I think that, you know, it's coming whether they want it or not. Uh, I think the Trump administration will have, to, will have to address some big strategic questions as it's coming into office. What is their agenda in year one? A year one presidency, especially of this type, is hugely important. He has a big bunch of things he wants to do, and some of it requires legislation. How do you organize that kind of agenda to get as much of your stuff done as possible in the first year? And so healthcare is a big part of it, but it's not the only part. You know, you're going to have a lot of people pressuring for big tax changes, an infrastructure plan that he talks about all the time, you know, veterans assistance, et cetera, et cetera. How do you marshal all of that in a legislative program to get it done? Where does healthcare fit? If healthcare consumes the entire first year of his presidency, trying to repeal and replace the ACA, it could easily crowd out everything else because it's such a huge topic. So they're going to have to be careful, think it through, figure out what they think is realistic to get done. And I, I should say, at the moment, it looks like Republicans will have more of a free hand in some ways to go about striking down Obamacare, given that they control both houses of Congress, that budget reconciliation has been proven now, not only to enact health care, but Republicans have already gotten like a warm-up budget re reconciliation repeal effort through, so they know how to take parts of the law apart relatively quickly. Do you think the healthcare industry wants Obamacare to go away? No. I think that they... My guess is that they probably prefer the certainty or the stability of what's known versus the uncertainty and instability of what, what's unknown. A little bit like the financial markets today yeah. <laughs> are showing their, their uneasiness about what might come. So I, I'm, I'm thinking that, I don't know, but I'm thinking that the industry is probably having invested so much in getting the ACA to where it is now with all of its problems, they're probably thinking to themselves, oh my goodness, do we have to kind of reinvent everything again. The poll that comes to mind for me, Modern Healthcare surveyed 100 plus healthcare CEOs maybe five or six months ago. 2%, just 2% wanted outright repeal of the yeah. law. So for all of the flaws, yes, the predictable revenue, this new model that they've all been moving to operate under, a push towards value-based care, MACRA, the landmark physician legislation that the Obama administration passed with bipartisan support, I think there's a lot of question over where does that go? Where does Medicare's Innovation Center go? Any thoughts on some of those smaller pieces of health policy beyond Obamacare? Yeah, I think a lot of those are going to get changed pretty substantially. I mean, one unmentioned un part of all this is that the ACA and MACRA both handed huge amounts of authority to the executive branch. I mean, in some ways, the people that passed them have been cheering for the last couple of years thinking, well, the Obama administration can move forward with their agenda. They don't have to deal with these 
Republicans, you know, because they have the authority already in the law. We're going to keep moving forward regardless of the you know crazy Congress, that kind of thing. I, I think what you're getting to is a larger issue around executive power, not yes. just in healthcare, but that the executive now has more authority to get things done on his his own. And when Democrats controlled the White House, that was seen as a good thing. I remember folks uh, from Pharma warming, warning me a few months ago with the Part B uh, drug program that they're so concerned about that, that the Obama administration could push through these drug price reforms using the Medicare Innovation Center. They said, what happens if President Trump takes over for Obamacare supporters? That Innovation Center could be a very tempting way to roll back parts of Medicare, parts of health care that Dems really like. Absolutely. And, and um you know, I'm 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 in favor and on the record of in saying that that authority in the innovation center is way too broad. They shouldn't have given them that much authority just to rewrite things as they saw fit. A bureaucracy, essentially, that was too much. But now that it's there, what does a Trump administration do with it? Do they like it? Do they not like it? You know, I, I really am not sure what they'll do with it. But they certainly, if they want to, have a massive amount of authority to change things on their own, even without the Congress. Let's let's talk a little bit about maybe the other big question beyond what this policy is going to look like. Who is going to implement it? What does a Trump administration look like? And you said earlier this year, you told Politico, I would never serve in a Trump administration. And to continue that quote, the person at the top is unfit for the presidency. He's made that very clear with his behavior. I'll ask you again, would you serve in a Trump administration? No, no, I would not. So that, that's an easy one. But uh, I think there will be a lot of people in Washington, you know, good intentioned people who want to do what's good for the country, who would, you know? And so uh, they'll have no shortage of takers of people who want to, you know, work in a new administration to try to do what they think is the right thing. And um, and many of the people I might end up knowing and, uh, you know, and think they're good, good, competent people. So we'll see what happens. But uh, myself, no, I'm not interested. Who do you think will be HHS secretary? <laughs> I really, I have no idea. I mean, I, you know, I think that... Uh, you know, there's nothing like winning, as Trump likes to say, to change the tenor of things, right? So now that he's won, I think the types of people that are willing to associate with him now that he's going to become president is going to be different than the types of people that wanted to be associated with his campaign for the office. And so I think the, the group will broaden and he'll end up with all kinds of different possibilities, not just maybe some of the ones you've heard of so far. I've, I've seen some of that momentum in real time. Folks that I talked to a week ago when a Trump victory seemed incredibly unlikely based on what we thought we knew about polls told me things that they started walking back during election night as the polls were changing and as I was checking in with them. <laughs> um, not not dramatically yeah. so, but some of the more uh, cutting comments on Trump's health policy folks were starting to tinker with how they wanted to talk about it. With sure. Uh, yeah, sure. Well, let's let's end on three very quick questions. I, I think we're taking as a given that Obamacare, if it's not extinct, it's certainly now on the endangered list. How will we remember Obamacare? Well, I'm not sure... I'm not sure I'm ready to concede that it's on the extinct list either, really. You know, I think... Or the endangered list. Endangered list, either one. You know, I think the... um, There's a certain momentum that occurs with a big program like this. It would be very, very unusual and almost unique in American political history to wipe away totally something that put in place big benefit programs for lower-income Americans. 
We don't really ever do that. Now, we did welfare reform, but it wasn't really taking anything away. It was modifying and adjusting in a big program. So if they were to do that, that'd be a big change in our political culture in American history. And I think it would be, you know, uh, wouldn't happen without a firestorm. There'd be a big, big uproar around it. So I'm not sure that it's going to be quite like that. I think the ACA is more likely to, the most likely scenario from my perspective, and I predicted a lot of things in the last year that have been wrong, so you take this for whatever it's worth, but my, my own sense is that they will do something big, it will shift things a lot, but there'll be still some recognizable elements of the ACA in whatever moves forward, just because that's the nature of American political process. Right, co-opting what's already yes. there and, and compromising when, exactly. when possible. What excites you about the next four years? <laughs> well, I'm not too excited. Uh, I'm more apprehensive. So I don't really know because I really don't know what that, uh, I'm not sure I understand the basic trajectory of a, of a Trump administration yet. Um, but, you know, my hope is that the United States is a big, complicated country. And I think we should recognize that. And so a health program that seems supportable by a broader cross-section of the country is really needed, something that both sides of a political divide can buy into and accept. It's really important to have the stability to have that. And so there needs to be some effort at compromise to sort of say the the Democrats, the, the ACA supporters are right. Health insurance is a good thing. We don't want people not to have health insurance. That's not a good thing. On the other side, I think there needs to be some recognition that Government regulation and having everything run through a bureaucracy in, in Washington is also not necessarily always a good thing, even though some people think it is. And so if there can be some compromise around responsibility, who's responsible for what? What's governmental responsibility and what are people responsible for that strikes a balance between the two parties? That would be a good thing. Let me flip that question around to close this out. What are you most worried about in the next four years? Well, I'm worried that the, the because, the, as you noted earlier, that the policy was a thin in the campaign, that some of the ideas that might be pursued by an administration will be not very well thought out and backfire and lead to bigger problems. Um, and, you know, I'm concerned in the areas that I work on and focus on, but I'm also concerned about things that are beyond my normal scope. I think in international relations, there's lots of questions about where we're all going with this. And so my my worry is that we need to be very careful. This is serious business and, you know, try to take all these responsibilities as seriously as possible and do what's best for the country. Well, after an unpredictable campaign, it it feels like the next number of months will be equally unpredictable. And Jim Compretta from, from AEI, I'm sure we'll be checking back with you. Thank you for making time this morning. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's Dan Diamond, and thanks for listening to Pulse Check today. We'll now rejoin the podcast with an interview of Ron Pollack, Executive Director of Families USA, who's planning total war to defend Obamacare's coverage expansion. There, there's no way around this. Trump's victory was stunning. It upended every poll. It confounded expectations. Be honest. Were you prepared for this at all? I had every expectation that Hillary Clinton was going to uh, win the election and become president-elect. And 
Uh, I even thought that along with her election, that there was a reasonably good chance that the Senate would uh, be uh, Democratic, at least 50-50 or 51-49. And uh, uh, so I was very surprised. And we had made uh, many uh, plans with respect to what we would do with uh, uh, Clinton presidency and how that might affect health care. Uh, so w- we, uh, we knew that obviously there was a chance that uh, Donald Trump would win the election, and we talked broadly about what should be done. But the kind of finite detail that uh, we put into thinking through a Clinton presidency did not occur with respect to the prospects of a Trump presidency. So it's safe to say that while there had been a conception of where Families USA, where the pro-Obamacare movement could go under Trump, we're still very much at the beginning stages of figuring out what that will look like. Well, we are at the early stages. I, I know I stayed up through the night. Uh, to, Me too, yeah. Um, but not just watching the returns after it was clear that uh, Mr. Trump was going to win the election. Uh, we tried to figure out, so what are the things that we have to do and do quickly? And the reason we have to react quickly is that while the Trump election is going to affect so many different sectors, um, one of the things that we know is that health care is an area that, at least with respect to possible repeal of the Affordable Care Act, is something that Speaker Ryan and uh, his colleagues uh, in the Re- Republican caucus have in common uh, with Donald Trump in terms of wanting to repeal the Affordable Care Act as well as uh, restructuring the Medicaid program. The second thing they have in common is that they want to do it early. They want to do it as quickly as possible. So we know that the things that we want to see protected have a bullseye and the clock is ticking. I, I want to read back a, a quote that you put out this morning. I, very early this morning, it made its way into the Pulse newsletter. Trump's election will have, quote, tragic consequences for tens of millions of people in terms of repealing Obamacare and rolling back the coverage expansion there. And to add to your quote, you said, we at Families USA are going to be on a total war footing to make sure this never comes about. What is your battle plan here, Ron? Well, to tell you that uh, we've worked out every facet of it would be terribly misleading because uh, we, we've just started the process of figuring out what are the components of uh, of this fight. Um, but the bottom line and what we said in the press statement is that this is, this is the most significant political battle on health care that we've ever experienced. I've been the director of Families USA for 34 years. Uh, and so I can recount lots of different battles uh, with respect to uh, what the healthcare system should look like and what the politics were like about that. And I've also read the history that preceded my being here. Uh, I think this is going to be the largest battle, and the, and, and the message we want to send is that that battle is going to be joined 
and we're going to do everything in our power along with allies who have who care so deeply about protecting the tens upon tens of millions who've benefited from the Affordable Care Act so that their lifeline is not destroyed. One of the criticisms I've heard from Democrats and Obamacare supporters is that Republicans have been the party of resistance. They have fought tooth and nail on Obamacare. Now that the tables have turned, does that make Families USA any different? Does that make your movement any different if you fight repeal tooth and nail now that Republicans have a mandate to conceivably go about implementing their policy agenda? We have several roles here to play. Um, my recollection of 1994, when Newt Gingrich uh, ascended to the speakership and there was a big influx of Republicans. The Republican Revolution. The Republican Revolution, the contract with America. Um, the, the, the leaders on the Democratic side, the more progressive side, were for quite a while in a catatonic state. Uh, and they didn't know how to react, and, and, and they were, were the opposite of energized. And uh, we recognize that this actually uh, might be considered even a bigger defeat because uh, at least in ninth, after the 1994 election, there was a Democrat in the White House. Uh, and so we know that the role of an organization like Families USA is to start the resistance and to grow the resistance. And we recognize that it has to happen quickly and effectively. So uh, that is, that's our intention, is to start this process immediately, to make it as robust as possible, so that the huge numbers of people who have been benefited don't get harmed. You know, one of the things that Republicans will have to contend with as they think about how they want to deal with a possible repeal of the Affordable Care Act in whole or in part, is that <clears throat> it's very different to withhold something from someone if they've never had it before. It's a total contrast to give someone something that they really value and then to try to take that away. And that's especially true if what is given to a person essentially is their lifeline. And that is what, that's what the stakes are. And so we th think that although there have been cavalier statements for, since 2010 about repealing the Affordable Care Act, uh, I, I think that this has much greater political difficulties than those people who cavalierly talk about that currently understand. So I, I, I want to push you on that because that idea makes sense that folks who are benefiting from something won't want to see it go away and there will be a political price to be paid. At the same time, we seem to have seen voters going against their own interests, not just on the presidential election this week, but over the past number of years in Kentucky. There were many folks who benefited from Obamacare there who voted for Matt Bevin, who was incredibly anti-Obamacare. It makes me wonder, Ron, I, I think 20 million people or so have gotten covered through the health law through Obamacare. I imagine when we get the final numbers, some large share of that, whether it's 30%, whether it's 50%, who knows, voted against their interest on Obamacare last night. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, it's interesting that you cite 
Governor Bevan as an example. Uh, Governor Bevan really did want to obliterate the uh, Affordable Care Act in Kentucky, and he has not done that. He found the reality was harder than the rhetoric. Absolutely, and, and you know there were two components to it. One component was uh, what would happen with the marketplaces, what they called Connect, K-Y-N-E-C-T, uh, that was the state's running of these marketplaces. And the other big one was the expansion of Medicaid, of which there are 400,000 people in the state who have gained coverage uh, through Connect. And these are low-income folks, so uh, they're, they're not ex exactly uh, typical Republicans. Uh, and yet, Matt Bevan has changed his tune somewhat. I don't mean to say that he's embraced the Affordable Care Act, um, but he, he has said, and he actually said it near the end of his campaign, I'm not going to withhold this care from the people who have already received that. Now, he wants to make adjustments to the legislation, and he's offering so-called waivers of some of the requirements in Medicaid that he's hoping would be approved here in Washington. But he learned as a strong opponent of the Affordable Care Act that it's one thing to say, I'm going to repeal or, or eliminate something. It's another thing to actually do it. And the harm that gets caused and the anger that it produces is something any politician must keep in mind. But we also should keep in mind that there is so much anti-Obamacare anger right now. I saw an NBC News exit poll that 45% of voters felt that Obamacare went too far. Well, actually, let's, <clears throat> let's pick out what's in these uh, poll data. Uh, Kaiser Family Foundation uh, issues something like monthly uh, polls. We, we report on them in Pulse every month, the tracking poll that they do of voters. Yes. So... There are several different things that those polls show. The first thing where you are absolutely accurate is that if you ask uh, people the question, do you support or do you oppose the Affordable Care Act, it's fairly even with slightly higher opposition than there is support. No doubt about that. If you ask uh, people two other sets of questions, you get a very different result. If you ask people, do you want it repealed and eliminated, or do you want to keep it as is or make some modifications to it? Those latter two score much higher than repeal. But even more telling is when you ask questions about different elements of the Affordable Care Act, do you believe that the protections for people with preexisting health conditions, so they can't be denied coverage or charge a discriminatory premium, do you think that should continue off the charts with support. Do you think that uh, uh, there should be an elimination of the provision that prevents discrimination against women in what premiums get charged? Off the charts support. If you ask the question, do you think we should allow insurers once again to establish arbitrary caps in pre in, in uh, um, how much they pay out if somebody is really sick or has a major accident, annual caps or lifetime caps. People say overwhelmingly, we don't want that because that's insurance that doesn't insure. You go down the list, the menu of things that are in the Affordable Care Act, and they're very popular. The one thing that's not popular is the mandate. 
the mandate, which was even tuned down to make it more popular and in some ways contributed to the challenges with Obamacare. That's right. That's right. Um, Because not enough young and healthy people were motivated to move into the market because the mandate didn't have the same bite that some Democrats would have wanted. Absolutely. Um, So uh, there's no question that when you talk about the components of the Affordable Care Act, there's enormous support. Even if you ask the question in the composite you support or post, they're differing answers, and they're very sharply different answers. So understanding, to, to paraphrase here, understanding that some provisions of this law are now popular enough that you think they're not going away, it would just be too politically difficult, let's change gears a little bit, and thinking about the role of groups like yours, of Enroll America, of other advocacy organizations that have worked to fight for Obamacare, what is their role going to be moving forward, especially in this Obamacare enrollment period that could be the last Obamacare enrollment period? Well, Families USA, which led the fight from outside of government for the enactment of the Affordable Care Act, we're going to lead this fight to protect it. But uh, we're going to have a huge number of organizations all across the country that will participate vigorously in this effort. Like who? And, and, even, and even this afternoon at 3 o'clock, we have a conference call with many hundreds of advocates across the country, which is starting the outreach process and the mobilization process. And it means uh, uh, groups that... Uh, specialize in different aspects of healthcare. to mean some of the groups that uh, have as members people with disabilities or health problems. It means religious organizations. Uh, it means some of the people who help people get enrolled in coverage. There, is a, there are different age group organizations and organizations representing different uh, uh, demographic or, uh, groups. Uh, they will participate again because their memberships are going to be at great risk. And, uh, and it's really important to understand this is not just a benefit. This is a lifeline. And you take away someone's lifeline, especially once they've gotten it, that is something for which there is going to be intensity of opposition. Will the healthcare industry join you in this fight given the benefits that Obamacare has brought to them? I have not yet, in the 18 hours or so, uh, reached out to the various, what I um, affably call, or lovingly call, strange bedfellow organizations. But we coordinated three different strange bedfellow efforts as a prelude to the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. And we got tremendous support from hospital groups, from physician organizations, from nurses, uh, from insurers. Uh, And I expect for many of them that support will be there and we will uh, be talking with them very quickly. Last, Last few questions from me. This has been your life's work, coverage expansion. The realization of Obamacare was a crowning moment how are you feeling right now? Well, you know, if you ask the question, have you been doing this all your life? My response would be no, not yet. Uh, we're, we're, uh, 
the, clearly the uh, adoption of the Affordable Care Act was an achievement that we savor and and um, but one I've I've been deeply involved in lots of um, public interest causes. I worked in the civil rights movement in Mississippi. I started and ran for ten years an organization to end domestic hunger, uh, uh, and I've been here at Families USA. One of the things that I've learned among, I hope many, is that when you're dealing with social change, there's no such thing as a permanent victory or a permanent defeat. And our job is just to keep on keeping on uh, and do the best we can. And we're going to do this and we're going to spare no quarter to try and protect the tens upon tens of millions of people who consider the health coverage they've just received as their lifeline. Is this the biggest defeat for that movement, for your movement, in your professional lifetime? Nothing's been taken away. That fight is in front of us. It's not in back of us. The election enables the Republican Party and opponents of the Affordable Care Act to do things that I oppose. But they haven't done it yet. And uh, just like they have opposed the Affordable Care Act after it was, it was adopted, they're going to see mighty opposition when they try to repeal or uh, significantly harm uh, people who are depending on the Affordable Care Act. Well, some groups that were planning on phasing out in rural America, I spoke with Ann Philippic on this podcast just a few months ago, and we talked about the plan to wind in rural America down in about a year and a half. Does that still happen? Does Enroll America get wound back up to try and fight for Obamacare? Well, I'm the chairman of the board of Enroll America. Part of the reason I'm asking. And I created uh, Enroll America. Um, Anne's been a spectacular leader. Um, But the plan um, that the board made with Anne together, with Anne's recommendation, was that Enroll America would cease to exist before the fifth open enrollment period. And, uh, and that's largely a function of resources. Uh, the, uh, there are a lot of uh, well-meaning philanthropists uh, and organizations that have been generous to groups like Enroll America that uh, sometimes want to move on to other agendas. And uh, given that uh, we've uh, will have gone through four open enrollment periods. Uh, there, en- Enroll America probably uh, is going to phase out. It's certainly phasing down. Uh, and But Enroll America never perceived itself as an advocacy organization. Enroll America was an organization to try to help people learn about the Affordable Care Act and to help them get enrolled. They did not try to become an advocacy organization. So uh, there are many other organizations that are in the healthcare space that are traditional advocates, and they will be engaged uh, throughout this battle. Last question. This is a fight. This is a battle. You're going to the bunker. It is very clear where you stand on the outcome of the election. What from last night excites you? I'm 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 kind of stuck to answer that question. Uh, I, I I didn't find a whole lot of uh, 
happy excitement last night. I, I did see excitement, but I'm, I wouldn't categorize it as, as happy excitement. Um, but it became clear uh, as the night progressed, uh, and I was here uh, uh, to uh, Donald Trump's statement uh, that he made, and uh, that we've got the battle of our lifetime ahead of us. And so I spent most of the night preparing what are the different things that we need to do. And our, uh, our senior staff got together early this morning. Our full staff got together right after that. And I will tell you that we are committed to see this through as best we can. Um, you can't, can't guarantee victory at the end of the day, but we are going to stand firm. Ron Pollack, thank you for taking time away from your battle plans. We will check in with you. Thanks for making time for the podcast. Good to be with you, Dan. Thanks for listening to Pulse Check today, uh, a Pulse Check that was put out on very little sleep in a very early morning. You can email me at ddiamond at politico.com if you have thoughts, suggestions over where our coverage will go next. With thanks to Bridget Mulcahy, our producer, you can find the podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, all the usual haunts. Please Keep rating us there, downloading the podcast, and subscribing as you can. And we'll be back again with a new podcast next week.